welcome to this special episode of the Adelan Rising podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Doc and Adam, and today we are joined by writer, actor, comedian, and renowned comic book scribe James Asmus. Along with many other projects, Mr. Asmus is perhaps best known in comic book circles as the author of Eisner Award-nominated series Quantum and Woody Must Die. Other books of note Mr. Asmus has written for include Thief of Thieves, Generation Hope, The Delinquents, Gambit, Kong of Skull Island, and of course, All New Inhumans. But I just want to, uh, you know, thank you for joining us, and also thank you so much for eleven fantastic issues of All New Inhumans. Oh, it was my it was my pleasure to to do them. I'm, I, uh, I very sincerely loved uh, getting to do this book and kind of the parameters that were set and where they let me go with it and the characters both that I inherited and that I was able to to make um it was it was one I was very sincerely um loved the experience of and uh I'm just glad anyone was on the other end reading it <laughs> uh well you uh, know, uh, yeah. how much you enjoyed it definitely uh echoed through in the page Lots of love in that issue. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I only just caught up on the last two issues yesterday, and yeah, they were really, really great. So, thank you. <laughs> so, Adam, are you recording? Yep, I have been recording for just that that bit there. So, alright. So, I guess we can just get started because uh, I don't want to waste anyone's time. Sounds good. Yeah, that's Sounds all good. good to me. All right. So, Mr. Asmus, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm thrilled and delighted that an Inhumans podcast exists. So, <laughs> <laughs> tell me when when you first came on to 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 co-write all new Inhumans um, with Charles Soule, uh, w- were you brought on right away? Um, it, the first couple issues you guys were listed as co-authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Who, who did what? So, um, at the time Marvel first reached out to me, um, they had been, uh, you know, Charles had been kind of crafting a grand plan for the Inhumans for a while. Um, they, Charles had already uh, conceived of I assume with the editors, um, a general thrust for a second book. Um, definitely wanting to show, I think, some of the consequences of the Terrigen Cloud being released. Um, and, the, you know, Crystal was included, Gorgon, um, I believe Flint, and I think... I, I can't remember offhand if Dinesh was inherently part of it, or if there was he and Naja were maybe a contingent of like characters I could use. Um, It's, it's been long enough now that I'm a little hazy on recalling. (laughs) um, So some of the, some of the, the more recently created characters, whether they were um, baked into the DNA or, uh, or if they were uh, of my options. Um, I see. But, you know, the the idea that they would be going around the world uh, to places where the cloud had just hit in some kind of uh, 
combination of a diplomatic mission and a strategic one um, was was already uh, baked in. And then that that first plot of uh, the the first arc was something that Charles had a few suggestions of potential storylines, and one was the idea of a nation where they had claimed there were no Inhumans when the cloud hit, and it was sort of akin, in his mind, to you hear about, <clears throat> you know, African dictators saying there are no gay people in their nation. Um, uh, you're talking about Sin Kong. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the yeah the the Sing Kong arc. So at first he was just sort of loosely saying uh, he thought a potential kind of real world interesting thing to explore would be that if someone claimed there were none within their borders. Um, and in looking into it, uh, in trying to craft specifics for the story, I pulled out my handy Marvel atlas and. Uh, <laughs> read up on a bunch of established countries and um, I think it's always interesting you know the Inhumans have been uh, <clears throat> kind of outside of the main action of the Marvel Universe for so many decades up until very recently that to me this series felt like it could be an interesting place to get them to engage with stuff you don't necessarily think of um, other parts of the established Marvel universe. And so I wanted to find one that existed rather than, um, invent a new one if I could. And Sin Kong was kind of a perfect, um, opportunity, uh, despite the fact that it's maybe geographically different from the kinds of, uh, things that were inspiring Charles with the plot. Um, at the time, you know, the the one appearance in the seventies was sort of a, uh, Vietnam, parallel but i actually think it aged into being a clear kind of naturally a better parallel for um north korea well the um the that definitely seemed evident um and (laughs) no one's emails would get hacked you know well there's that and and i i love the way that um artist uh, Stefano Caselli used actual panels of that old issue of Avengers for, uh, for yeah. in, a, in a collage in the background. That was very cool. We got so <clears throat> spoiled having him on that book. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, that was, that was, he was already attached when they, when Marvel uh, first reached out to me about it. And I was beside myself. I was actually a fan of his back in the early days of hack slash when he was the artist and obviously he's gotten um his work has only grown and um uh scope and in mastery and in subtlety uh since then so i was thrilled because he's someone who i know is i had always known him to be very good at character and um for me that's a big that's the biggest part that I care about in a story is sort of the emotional experiences of the characters and their perspective. And, um, whenever I get paired with an artist who's maybe great at fights, but not great at human subtlety, I'm always kind of bummed out. So having someone like him who can do tremendous emotional range and emotional complexity in his characters, but also still deliver 
just like beautiful and powerful action. Um, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. And I was so excited, too, that he was able to do the vast majority of this series. Um, I know. It was wonderful. And uh, <clears throat> you're right. His, uh, I agree with you. His ability to capture facial expressions of emotion, it's, it's right up there with McGuire. I mean, it's just peerless. Yeah. Yeah, I think now, I think Stefano doesn't quite. I know he's been a, a power player at Marvel. Like he's really done a lot of launches and a lot of great books. But I, I feel like he still doesn't quite get enough uh, recognition. Credit? Yeah, like he's he doesn't pop up as quickly and as constantly on lists uh, as I think he should. But yeah, no, that's fair. I think you're right. Mm, definitely. Uh-huh. Well, the color work on the book too. I mean, the two of them together, I think... Oh, Andres Massa, yeah. Oh, my God, they need to stay together forever. They (laughs) complement each other so well. It's so true, and he he really did... um, They did a lot of great coordination in terms of deciding who was going to tackle what element. So there were parts... They were great at kind of communicating about certain effects that could be done in the color and building the art with that in mind... um, so that you had different depths and textures as opposed to everything being drawn and then the color laid on. There were there were places where he sort of passed the baton to Andres and um, they have a tremendous working relationship and it really, you could tell they know how to bring out the best in each other and, but they're also, they're also both storytellers. And I could speak to mood in my scripts and Andres would really lean into it and execute those moods beautifully um, which uh, is something you would hope that <laughs> uh, I don't know if you can hear my wife singing opera in the background but um, I certainly can <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah uh, the, the best colorists do it um, and but too many don't and and the fact that they could work together in so wonderfully i was really really struck i um as much as i love stefano by how much his pages were elevated when i first started getting the colors in uh, yeah and you really challenged them i mean a lot of books they take place in new york and that's it but you went from sydney to mainland china to mozambique i mean and the palette adjusted just perfectly with each uh, each each locale. It was really it was really amazing. Well, I was I was I felt like it would be a waste to do a globe trotting book and to spend any time, honestly, in the United States, like at all. But especially in New York, I sort of knew. Yeah. I just didn't want to go there at all. Um, and even even in the other stories I had plotted that I wanted to do, I was trying to. The closest we would have gotten would have been like South America or uh, Alaska, I think. Alaska is part of the United States, but you know, not not, not for the intents of um, kind of scenery uh, and and feeling like you're getting it in every other book. Well, the, the the narrative definitely seemed to be moving in a direction it was going. You know, it was circumnavigating the globe. I feel like, had there been an issue 12, 13, 14, we would have eventually gone through Russia, up into uh, Alaska, down into South America. Um, 
but it was a neat journey, and I love you know it's so it's just very infrequent that we get we get Marvel stories that take place in place in, in such a, uh, a broad range of locales, places that aren't New York. <laughs> so I appreciated that. Yeah, I think uh, uh, maybe foolishly I had held out hope that our international sales would be boosted by this uh, <laughs> design that <laughs> that it would buy us some extra life, but uh, but uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, when so so you 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 had characters that you were um, that, that that you were given that you were said you use crystal use Gorgon, and then characters that you could create on your own. Um, was there any particular character uh, in in general uh, in specific who you found yourself having an especial uh, affinity for? Someone who you really liked writing? Um, the in broad strokes, uh, very sincerely, all of them. Um, I I come. My initial background in anything creative was spending. 12, 13 years as an actor and the part of what I loved about it is the same as what I found came to love about writing which is getting in the headspace of someone who's not you and coming to really be able to empathize with them and understand their perspective and what's important to them and what's driving them and um, this team you know after I had my givens I sort of started to think about where those people were in their lives and what their perspective would be on all this and then I wanted to round out the team with um, some complementary or complicating viewpoints Um, one of the things that was very important to me about this being world traveling and therefore inherently political um, by which I don't mean Republican Democrat agenda I mean literally the business of politics like they can't just run in and punch a bad guy and leave when you're dealing with a sovereign nation and you're representing a different nation. Um, And I I was kind of interested in, as someone who was uh, totally an idealist and has had to come to accept the fact that um, you have to sell out some of your beliefs sometimes in order to serve more important ones, as disillusioning and as uh, disheartening as that can be, that was something I was sort of interested in exploring in this. And to me, I wanted a complexity of viewpoints among the characters where someone could advocate for a utilitarian response and someone else could advocate for an idealist, like holding on to your ideals in a lot of cases that became Flint. Um, yes. And, uh, so I, I, I loved him for that. I loved crystal for the fact that, um, she has always been the bridge for the Inhumans between the, the real world, the human world, um, the real world. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> the non-inhuman world. But with Spider-Man <laughs> in the Fantastic Four. Um, she, she, was, she was always the biggest, strongest first bridge between the Inhumans and, and the rest of the Marvel Universe. And, um, and well, she's, It was an interesting thing with her. And I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, um, that's because uh, uh, she she has been, I mean, she was a member of the Fantastic Four. She was a member of the Avengers. She's always been the member of the royal family who was least inclined to stay secluded. She wanted to uh, be, to see the whole world. Yeah. Yet, and so I think she here, made a lot of sense for Charles to put her front and center. But 
she was also so driven by compassion um, in in all of her depictions um, up until you get to War of Kings where she had to wear a kind of um, strategic and uh, a much more complicated uh, mantle as sort of a, an um, as an ambassador for the people and I think this is a, a really interesting logical outgrowth of that that I was excited where Sometimes you're, you're told, this is the new status quo, and you're like, boy, that doesn't make any sense for where this character has, is coming from in continuity. But with her, I think it's a real growth. And I loved trying to balance her taking on more responsibility while also still trying to preserve her compassionate nature. Self. Yeah, her yeah. interest. And also I think that she has been the most adapted and humanized of the Inhumans. And so I think... You know, I was able to relate to her more than I was to, say, Gorgon or some of the other ones who I think still have this kind of otherness and this withdrawal to their, um, just their worldview. But she was... It's, it's funny you should say that about Gorgon, because I thought you did a really great job with him, in, in particular in capturing his struggle, uh, how he's attempted to cope with having been paralyzed and now being sequestered to a wheelchair. Um you know, I, I um, in in the real world, I have known a few people who have who've had to deal with uh, not as severe but similar injuries, and um, I thought you handled it really well. Um, the way it caused him to uh, relook at his priorities, relook at his role as a father. Um, did did you do some specific research into how people tend to deal with such debilitating injuries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I uh, I don't know if this is gross, but I, I became a lurker on certain forums uh, for especially veterans um, right. who were speaking to each other about some of what they were feeling and dealing with um, after having, you know, in one form or another, uh, incurred physical disability or damage uh, trauma in in combat um it felt like the most it it felt like a real world um analog that uh could apply to certainly his mentality he had of the family always been the most um frontline soldier of the family and i think you've seen although he's although he's had a child in story before uh petrus it was they were always secondary and I thought that was yeah. interesting um, you know in getting this aside from just Charles uh, setting up the team in the thrust and having the idea for a realm to uh, some stuff to explore for that first arc there was a list of stuff I kind of got from them of like hey if you can come up with an answer to some of this stuff or if you can touch on this or carry the ball forward and one of them was that Matt Fraction introduced the son of Gorgons, who had not otherwise been established in his, you know, two issues of Inhumanity, uh, and then didn't keep working on it. So they were like, can you answer where he is and what's happening and do something with it? Um, and uh, it would have been a... It would have been a bigger part if we kept going it was going to be soon to be in the forefront 
for an arc. Yeah. Um, uh, so we, you know, certainly in eleven, there were certain things I had planned on doing a little slower that we jumped to as as far as we could without going too far too fast. If that makes sense, like yeah, you had to wrap up a lot. Yeah, and trying to create a gesture towards where these things might be headed and give you a sense of these people are going down these paths now um, without trying to jump to a, a complete resolve that wasn't earned. Um, well, yeah. I, I, I really like that you brought Petrus back in, and I also especially appreciate you name-checking his half-sister because it's as though every other writer has forgotten she exists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I distinctly remember, that's actually one of the first Inhumans plots I really read as a as just a Marvel reader was the whole story with his daughter kind of falling in love with a, a, an alpha primitive and wanting to fight for their rights and ending up creating like a sanctuary for them. And, you know, I, yeah, uh, it was, it was a fantastic four issue. Yeah. And I, I thought that was, uh, I, in in an interesting way, you know, I sort of just asked at the beginning of this, like, like I said, there there were there was kind of a checklist of things they would like to maybe see touched on, w- without really having an agenda. They were just like, you know, these are these are kind of things worth um, checking back in on and and trying to, you know, evolve into a next step or or. <laughs> You know, not just have them fall by the wayside. Uh, and she was someone who I had sort of thought about maybe tying into this story with Petrus. Um, and we ultimately decided, you know, we can, by just acknowledging her, you, you can continue that she is still enjoying a happy ending. You know, she has the yeah. existence right now still that she wanted. Um, and you know if anything it it kind of taught gorgon that maybe he messed up there if his his daughter's choice was to not be around him like he'll respect that but he regrets that he let it get to that point and it's going to inform this decision that he he doesn't want to he doesn't want to lose the same opportunity to to really be a father with with his other child now yeah it was it was really well done um, thank you it, it, Switching gears a little bit, I, 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 was, uh, my, I, I suppose my favorite arc was the Utalan arc. Am I saying that right, Utalan? Sure, it's never been said out loud. So, <laughs> okay. oh, I say it Utalan because you have Utalan okay. and Oralan. Yeah. So I, I was saying it Utalan. I think I always said Utalan because Utalan. to me it's like Utopia is sort uh, of uh, yeah. Utalan, me, okay. I always pronounced yeah, it no, Utalon as well. Sort of, kind of. Yeah, I was unsure though. So. <laughs> yeah. So I. Um, but you know, these are all things where, by virtue of it being just me sitting in my apartment writing this stuff, I rarely have to say it out loud. So. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, Utalon will be the way I pronounce it from here on forward, which I'm sure will come up quite often in conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, it's this hidden uh, sanctuary of humans in the mountains of Mozambique. Uh, that, what? 
Hey, was there a, a particular inspiration for the creation of this? It kind of it, it made me think a lot of uh, James Hilton's Lost Horizon or or Haggard's King Solomon's Mines. It was. Uh, where did Utalan come from, or uh, Utalan come from? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, one of the other things we talked about in setting up this series was uh, Charles was wondering if, uh, in my having Flint, if I would like to flesh out his backstory because he had sort of alluded there were breadcrumbs of it in in Human, uh, the mm-hmm. series he had done, where you know we saw that. Flint's, Flint had been adopted, living in the United States in an enclave of Inhumans, um, or, you know, partial Inhumans, uh, who were fleeing the mist, and they were mostly killed by it, and he wasn't. Um, That's so, rough. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so in thinking about it, um, when he was like, you know, if you want to, I would love to answer some of that, because it was sort of teased as kind of a mystery how, how he got there. Um, and in thinking about it, I was very I was very struck by the question of, well, so he came from a place where they knew Terrigen might hurt him, so they put him with a group of people who were avoiding it. Um, but somehow he would still be threatened at home, uh, in the place he was sent away from, even if they knew it could kill him, they would still maybe expose him to it. I was like, so what What kind of a place is that? And at first I was like, well, you know, there's some sort of evil superpower factory where someone is just subjecting everyone to it, even if it's going poorly. Or, um, or it's a place where everyone has, uh, for, for lack of a more sensitive term, drank the Kool-Aid. And <laughs> and and they're going to do it. They're going to have their kids do it, even if it's killing people. Um, and that led me to think about um, uh, religions that sometimes are so set in their inherited beliefs, they stop realizing when um, it's maybe become harmful or uh, uh, in other ways maybe there's knowledge now where we should have think twice about some of this stuff. And it's interesting to me because then this idea that, um, any, whatever a person's religion is, it makes sense to you because if you grew up in it, but then you hear someone else's and it's like, well, that part is crazy. (laughs) And and the people who grew up in it don't think that way. And, and that's an area that I've been, long fast totally get that yeah (laughs) i totally get that (laughs) um the power of indoctrination exactly exactly so that um that became very interesting to me and then when i realized finding this other society that felt so alien but confident in itself became a um sort of microcosm of when the Inhumans were introduced to the Fantastic Four and I felt like it it kind of brought in a space um, that the Inhumans have represented in the early days of Marvel that we've been getting away from as they become globalized which is this idea of discovering a hidden colony with its own traditions and structures and trying to navigate it in a way 
where it's not it's not purely dystopian like so many stories go so easily um right. but it's just saying look there's good here there's wonderful things here there's good people but there is in the just by the fact that they have chosen to prioritize different things and they don't exactly have the same values as us there's going to be a place where our characters are going to break with them and are going to uh have a falling out um and for for that to be flint's family he'd been searching for but to ultimately say i can't accept this is um that's a real defining experience for him and that's part of what i was excited about doing this series was giving characters some more defining emotionally important storylines for them um so sorry to interrupt but part of that storyline was bringing anna craven off on Yes. And I wanted to know what what inspired you to include her in the storyline. So, um, when we were when we were starting the book, you know, the the basic premise that this Terrigen cloud had been moving around the world, and anyone could be inhuman was sort of the, you know, uh, hook right. for inhumanity and the inhuman series and all this stuff. And one of the things that I sort of said to Nick was like, yeah, but then like no characters we know in the Marvel Universe, it's all been (laughs) kind of like new people have turned. I was like, I was interested in taking someone who was a known character, but not, um, you know, to me, it would have reeked of uh, 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 opportunism or, or, you know, it would have it would have drawn the ire of all the people who were already believing that um inhumans were being forced upon them you know right as marvel would sneak into their local comic shop and change that person's pull list order <laughs> all of a sudden they're not getting all new inhumans it's all new or all new x-men it's all new inhumans who did this what 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 shoe making elves are suddenly changing the comics that appear in my uh, yes. credit card yeah. statement like no one's oh. making guys um, <laughs> uh, so if you if you took a, 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 a an established like very popular character like like Mockingbird or, or Spider Woman and made them unhuman, then you might get in trouble. But I, I, a somewhat I, yeah. lesser known character like Anna Krevinov, who, yeah. who's a cool character who hasn't been utilized in a long time, it right. seemed a really good option. Yeah, to me it felt like. Um, I tried to put together a list of characters who I thought were interesting and were cool and were not, um, didn't have a hundred years, a hundred issues of continuity about them. You know what I mean? Like, but I, to me, I wanted a character that felt cool, that felt interesting, but who had maybe stalled out narratively. And I thought like, you know, I didn't want to either break, you know, I didn't want to fix what wasn't broke and I didn't want to, take a character that someone had gotten, you know, that has a fan base covered in tattoos of that character and fundamentally change who they are. Contrary and, to and narrative. Belief, yeah, contrary to popular belief, I am I was not... Our goal with Inhumans was not to destroy the Marvel Universe you love. Um, but, yeah, so I, I had a small list of maybe like five characters who I thought... Um, kind of could actually benefit from getting another layer or another new having their identity be 
um, something that needs to be re-explored, as opposed to characters who already have you know four layers of retcons and and don't need it. Um, and she was someone who I just felt like once actual Craven came back, there wasn't a lot going on, and you you don't want Craven to have like a girl Robin to his Batman. Um, uh, so, so this was one that everyone kind of latched onto the most in terms of, uh, specifically when they were like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I want, fundamentally, it, it means that Craven had always wanted to be the best human, like the, the peak of humanity and prove that he was better than the animals, better than the mutants, the superpowered, any of that. I was like, for him to, his, his daughter had been wanting nothing more than to earn his approval as being true Kravenov, as being like him, this sort of peak example of humanity. And for her to find out she's not fully human, and for him to have rejected her, I think it upends her own identity. It creates distance between them. And then, you know, the stories that we can tell from her perspective, but also what stories you could do the next time they come back together. Um, you're just creating story possibility that is all emotional and has uh, weight and fresh ground to explore with these people. Um, it just feels like a an earned emotional story as opposed to a um, gimmick. At least that that was our approach. And, you know, I like certainly it. did not come across as a gimmick. That's for sure. No, well, not at all. I like Thank it. Some Spider-Man fans who have not read the comic feel differently, <laughs> and they're like, "What, bro- what Marvel uh, brand are you coming after next?" And I was like, "Really, you brand?" Yeah, I don't think. Can't catch a break, can you? I think you're going to get flack from everywhere, really. So, <laughs> has, yeah, has, right. Yeah. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, exactly. Well, if it's if it's any consolation. Uh, Ryan North and Erica Henderson also got a lot of flack for their portrayal of Craven and the unbeatable Squirrel Girl. So you're in good company. (laughs) That's true. Um, Speaking of Spider-Man, I actually thought you did a really good job with Spidey in uh, Sky Spear arc. And I just am going to put it on record that you need to do a Spider-Man book. (laughs) I would love to. I'm I'm doing a story for the Spider-Man annual. Um, coming out in December or January Um, and uh, yeah I for whatever reason did not realize that I haven't really written Spider-Man because he's so of my natural tone Um, like uh, I don't know how much other stuff people may have read of mine or not but um, I spent years doing comedy improv and sketch and stand-up which turned into so I so speed backstory. I was an actor for a long time. Turned into doing improv, sketch, stand up, which turned into playwriting, which turned into getting a chance to write comics. So, uh, and I was always a comics fan, but I spent so many years developing a comedic voice. Um, when I started writing theater, it wasn't all comedies. There were dramas, dramedies, musicals. But certainly um, the release valve of humor is very important to me in coping mechanisms and, and storytelling and <clears throat> um, just keeping things entertaining. Um, 
there's a little bit of that in this series, but someone like Spider-Man, who that is his coping mechanism, is such a such a relief of a character to get to write for me. There's this part of my brain yeah. that like heckles other stories I write, but I always have to tell to shut up. But when I can write a character who can say those <laughs> things, it's such a relief. <laughs> yeah, he, he, uh, I, I am. Uh, I have followed your career for a while. I think uh, uh, Spidey and Woody uh, have oh, a yeah, lot yeah. in common in their. Uh... Spidey's hey. a fundamentally better human being. But... Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah. A, a bit of a tangent. Is there any chance that we will see a reu- a, a, re- a reuniting of the Hey You Millionaires crowd? Um, you know, we now live in three different cities, so unfortunately, probably not. Um, we did a little bit of stuff for a while. We were all living in Los Angeles and we did a little bit, but the truth is once I had a a son, um, who is now, uh, three and I'm trying to figure out the months, I guess not enough to say a half, but basically when my son was born, I pretty much stopped performing because that's all rehearsals and shows are on nights and weekends. And, you know, that's the time he's not in daycare. So I, I figure I'll, you know, when my son's old enough to be like, dad, you're lame, leave me alone. Then I'll be like, okay, back to performing. But, um, when he's 21, then (laughs) I assume it'll happen way sooner than that. But yeah. Um, for, for those of you out there who are unfamiliar with what we're talking about here, here in Chicago, there's, a theater called the Annoyance Theater, and for many years they were uh, one of their top billed acts was a, a troupe of um, sketch comics called Hey You Millionaires, which was a riot. And um, Mr. Soul was one of the founding members. Asmus. I'm sorry, Mr. <laughs> Asmus. Well, you know, uh, so can we edit that out? Well, if you've seen me do karaoke, you'll know that Mr. Soul is an appropriate uh, amount of <laughs> different context. But yeah, so. Uh, oh, I was doing so well right up until. <laughs> um, but yeah, the. Uh, yeah, and that. Um, and uh, The Annoyance also produced a musical I wrote called Love is Dead, which was. Um, uh, what got me hired to write for Marvel when we did it in New York and uh, uh, I had invited some Marvel people to come see the show, not thinking I was applying for a job, but just trading theater tickets for a few minutes of wanting to ask them like what Alan Davis smells like or something. Um, <laughs> what does Alan Davis smell like? <laughs> Uh, aloofness, as it turns out. Ah. <laughs> no, he's. <clears throat> um, Can you describe that, please? <laughs> no, no. He, uh, well, he's getting he's back on my track. all-time favorite artist, and the one time I met him was uh, he was very um, disengaged. He was at a show and he was doing a bunch of commissions, but um, I think uh, I think he is not as social as some of the other. He was not rude by any means. Uh, he was lovely, but just. Not made effectively zero small talk, so I was like, okay, okay, I'm not gonna, not gonna book him. I, I, I don't think I'll be alone in saying this, but I feel like one of your greatest strengths as a writer has been the, as your has been your character development, your your ability to give distinctive voice to a broad range of characters. Um, each of the characters in All New and Humans have come across as complex and interesting and very multidimensional. 
Yet I feel like Swain, Captain Swain, has been mm-hmm. especially vibrant. Because you know, it, it, when you were just starting this, uh, uh, a very nice thing that I appreciate you saying. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, it, I was like, oh, I realized I didn't finish saying earlier when I was talking about all the different characters how much I loved writing Swain, and, <laughs> and so it's funny that's where you were headed. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I that, also love Swain. <laughs> I think we all love Swain. <laughs> How can you not um, love a character that has a Captain Marvel bathrobe? <laughs> that was, I will say, that was all Stefano. That was not in the script, and I was so tickled by that. Same with her spidey handkerchief. But I did, uh, I think it's a natural outcropping he picked up on out of her enthusiasm um, for, like, Crystal being a princess. Like, I think she loves... Um, I, I really did want someone who... Um, this is maybe a fine point distinction from, say, like Flint's uh, idealism, but I wanted someone who had such sincere enthusiasm um, that I think it buoys the spirits of the people around her. Um, but to both know that it's real, but also to push deeper and find out that, like, in part, it's also a conscious thing. She has to decide how she behaves because she still doesn't know what ways she's affecting people and not. I think there's a sort of um, uh, tragicness to a really lovable and loving character um, that uh, I, it took me a long time to unpack my own response to the idea of this character. Um, she was one of the people who kind of developed um almost accidentally out of this idea that we were talking about, you know, how, how is the team going to travel around the world? And, you know, the, the Inhumans already have a floating city. Charles was like, maybe they should have like a cruise ship, but we're like, that's not fast enough. And it's not like, you also want to have a degree of threat to it. Um, so I sort of started spitballing different stuff about the Riv. And I love the idea that it would be, um, I loved the uh, Eldak, the Inhuman. Eldrak? Oh yes, yeah. Who turned into a, a tele? Who turned into a like teleportation door? Uh, and I love the idea. Furniture. Yeah, and and you know the the alternate. Uh, I know there's kind of split hazy continuity about whether um, Lockjaw is a person who turned into a dog or whether he's a dog. There's sort of there's <laughs> oh, continuity. No, he's a person. That's my theory. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's continuity that says both. There's continuity that says yeah. both, so I don't know. But but just the threat that this could give you great powers or it could turn you into a utilitarian thing. Um, or a battery. Right, right. So that I thought that was... That interested me, that the ship is, in a way, has its own consciousness and is alive. But then that the captain would never have to touch anything. She just can be in this kind of silent communication with the ship. Um, really interested me and then kind of working from there I just found myself thinking about like oh well if you you know they're they're kind of um, some empaths have the baggage of being really creepy like um, uh, was Star it Fox. Star Fox that's exactly who I was trying to think of <clears throat> um, right uh, that you know he's a playboy who has these kind of emotion manipulating things and it's like so he's the human roofie is like <laughs> a real a real not okay 
like power, <laughs> certainly in the modern era, that we uh, realize uh, how gross that is. Um, how but, was uh, that not his human, his official code name? That is funny. <laughs> <laughs> because he's not human. Okay, that's true. Tiny. The Titanic roofie? I don't know. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so, you know, it's upsetting. So I wanted a character who... Um, then to me, it's like, well, solve, yeah, so solve the problem of that. And it's like, this has to be the most loving, considerate person. Um, and then, uh, you know, and I, I have my own backstory for her, too, that hopefully I'll get to expound upon. There was going to be a one-off issue that kind of explored both her and Naja's backstories at the same oh, time. damn. Oh, yeah. I wonder read that. I know, I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, at at at, at um, one point during the Sin Kong story, uh, you had um, Naja utter a a phrase um, that is uh, I forget it right now. It's a, it's a Spanish Dominican. language phrase. Yeah, and specifically, I believe it's Dominican. Um, Right, it, it, yeah. it, it translates to what the seed pod, but it's actually just a, a common way of saying, oh, this is no good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Can we infer from that that Naja is, that at least part of her family at least, is from the DR? That was, that was going to be my, that was going to be, uh, that was my intent. Uh, certainly because I never got to say it canonically, someone might lay out the facts in a different way and I can't say their facts would be wrong if I didn't get to if I didn't get in there and tell it first you know it's sort of like um, in a lot of ways like with these characters it's tricky because you have to create your own reality and understanding for them and, and really emotionally invest in them but it's also like looking at a beautiful vista in the wild west. And if you're not the person who runs out there and stakes your claim to that land, like maybe someone else <laughs> moves into your beautiful mountaintop like, and, and then it's not yours. So that's, um, that's a last kind of, uh, the experience of, of doing this. So that was my intent. Um, but I'm not going to be a Chris Claremont and like rail against someone else coming in and writing a story that was different from what I had in my head. But, never bothered to put down in 200 issues of scripting these people. <laughs> you know? I wish we had 200 issues to script it because I could read about them all day. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, you're, you're mentioning Chris Claremont is, it makes sense because this, the, 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 the 11 issues, it definitely had that Chris Claremont era X-Men feel it, it didn't seem like a a, a, a copy or or a um, an imitation but it just you know a, an international group of youngsters who are still getting to know what their powers are oh yeah very well, cool and you know that was um fairly conscious uh, on my part i love i mean the the chris claremont's x-men was the uh, uh, piece of comics that got me from just picking up random issues here and there to loving something I read so much that I went back to the comic shop. I was like, Where, where's the storyline right before this? Where's the one right after this? Where, what's happening right now? And it's the one that got me to dig deep into following characters and, and following a, a continuity. Um, 
It's and, such a shame that, uh, I mean, so many of my fellow X-Men fans who I say, you have to pick up this book. I know you're going to love it uh, because it has that, you know, you know, it, what frankly the X-Men have not been able to capture in a long time has been captured here. And just because it doesn't have an X on the title, they refuse to read it. Yeah. And it drove, that, it drove me mad. That definitely bummed me out because I, in my mind, um, you know, it was never about uh, trying to copy anything from what he had done or to just echo stuff, which I think, um, and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus uh, for sure, but I think over, and I'm, I'm literally talking about the last 20 years, I think the worst, not the worst, but the, I think a lot of X-Men stories by any number of people, and I'm, not, I'm really not talking about currently, but just a, a, anyway. I, <laughs> uh, I hear you. Across the last 20 years, the X-Men stories that, um, I feel like there's too many that misstep by just repeating elements of stuff that has already happened. Yeah. Or thinking yes. like, or thinking what you really want to see is us to just go right back to when so-and-so was like this. Or like, here's a sequel to this other storyline in a way that recreates it. Half of it is a recreation and half of it is like a sort of update. Um, I think that's a misunderstanding of what was interesting about that X-Men stuff. And to me, um, I was just... I thought about it for a while um, because in terms of trying to make people care about new characters, either brand new or, you know, ones that Charles had created in, in human, but they were still being defined. Um, to me, I, w I was looking to Claremont's X-Men to say like, well, how did he make these people so well-rounded and distinct and indelible? Like characters that still people are, so hungry to follow their exploits that they will pray cancellation upon any book that doesn't uh, feature those people. So, <laughs> um, so, and, and I get it because I love those characters too. And, um, X-Men was always the biggest, uh, 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 part of my comics passion, especially superhero comics passion, um, coming yeah. out. Um, and to me, it was more about, focusing on who these people were and what they were dealing with in their lives and the stories echo those or they push their buttons and it's not a villain shows up to be a villain it's you marry a conflict to what your characters are struggling with and what is meaningful to them and it is you know it's super heroics in service of character as opposed to trying to sprinkle some character on top of a superhero plot. Um, and it well was said. about, and it was about, um, giving them real wants and real faults and real longing. Um, and you know, the global aspect, I think part of what was so interesting about, you know, um, Claremont's X-Men was, uh, full credit to Len Wein, though, too, for uh, Giant Size X-Men, is assembling a cast that is globally and racially diverse and kind of setting the table for that. But um, 
I think a chance to really explore different worldviews and different types of people. And I don't even think of it as like representation or, you know, or like diversity. I really just think of it as like, why wouldn't you want to? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to, especially in the case of this, the cloud is moving all around the world. To me, you needed to have a kind of global cast. And that in part to me was part of the interest of wanting to flesh out nausea to make her not just white American, but to kind of, (laughs) um, round out to who, uh, a perspective that was coming from another different place. I actually well, really, true. one of my um, favorite scenes from any of the arcs was in the Sing Kong arc, and you really got to see like that, um, those different viewpoints was when Panacea um, healed the three prisoners and killed the one, and then Grid was like all freaked out about it, and I just thought that was like fantastic. Oh, thank you. That, um, man, there's so much I wanted to do with her. <laughs> Uh, yes, that's cool. a very interesting character. I think I think the idea of uh, a healer without empathy is um, without making her a villain, without making her a sociopath. You know, what I mean, just someone who um, flatly doesn't think we should heal everyone. You know, what I mean, like, uh, and and it's sort of it's a. It's a precarious thing that has come to mind in different stories that I've read of other people's healing powers is this idea of like, yeah, but we have to die eventually. Um, And the idea that someone would have this ability, but sort of say, and and mean it, and it's not a struggle because something in the change, and this was another thing to me of, you know, if in human, if the Terrigen cloud can turn you into a thing, I think, one of the things I said to them is I also wanted to explore what can it rewire your brain? You know what I mean? Can it effectively turn you into a person with no um, emotion? And they were interested in that. And that was something I uh, certainly had notes of some other ways to explore her story and uh, um, the implications of all that. But, uh, (laughs) But even just in the practical side, for the team to have someone who can heal but isn't necessarily going to do it, um, right. I thought creates a very different... Uh, again, it, it felt part and parcel of the thrust of the book, which was um, you're not going to be able to get your idealistic outcome uh, uh, by virtue of... <clears throat> global political reality there's going to be some losses mixed in with your wins and um, I thought she kind of embodied that ethos in an interesting way yeah I thought she was fascinating and I, I think you're absolutely right that it, it stands to reason that the terrigenesis could affect one's neurology just the same as it affects their physiology yeah. Well, Doc, you were the one who wrote the whole write-up on her. You psychoanalyzed her. <laughs> well, I, it's pretty awesome. Read too. You should read it. I I I got a a question. Someone asked me if I saw uh, Panacea as being representational of the neuroatypical population, specifically oh, those those 
who uh, would be identified on the autistic spectrum? And, you know, and the answer was yes and no. I mean, because, you know, no, no two cases are alike and no, and no two people are alike. But um, and she also person- and also her her change came about via a an explicitly fictional circumstance right. which <laughs> exactly but, but but i but i actually i agree with you in that i was trying to write a sort of m- neurologically divergent character who was not our villain you know what i mean where it was yeah. someone who um had a different wiring and was trying to navigate it without leaping into world domination you know what i mean so and that that being and you know that there are many forms of empathy that not everything is about being sympathetic she 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 felt something for gorgon and her son and his son and their plight she wanted to help but it wasn't a you know your typical soft and mushy i need to do this because i'm a good person it's kind of utilitarian yeah yeah i think she um, yeah, it was an interesting thing to think about to me where someone who was able to um, sort of, and I know these are inexact distinctions, but intellectualize as opposed to emotionally calculate or, or respond to. But she, hers was sort of really a like, this person is doing good by other people this is something that is debilitating for them um i think this was you know this is manageable these aren't people who are who should be dying these are people who you know maybe need uh a piece of a solution um and i think you know she she developed bonds with she was in the process of developing bonds with the team um You know, I think we connect with people with uh, all sorts of different facets of, of who we are. They're, they're helpful to us. They're intellectually stimulating. They're, and I think that's a big part of it for her, too, is I thought of, like, who are the people she finds, you know, what if not pleasure, I think she still gets appreciation out of things that are honest. You know, people who are honest, things that are uh, intriguing, things that are... Um, educational things where she can respect their value systems. Like it was, it was interesting thinking about how someone who is not emotionally driven uh, would assess and appreciate uh, the people around her. So again, like I yeah, said, another just, an, another uh, aspect of her which is really interesting. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but um, the the surgeons I know, the people who work in emergency rooms, they when they're in the job, they have to. Uh, take on a very callous uh, uh, mindset because it's the only way you can avoid not being overwhelmed by what you're doing. And, uh, you know, she kind of reminded me of them in that regard. Am I going offline? No, did you go offline? Hmm? Oh, there you are. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just thinking about it. Leaving it open for you. Yeah. All right. Well, to, to from jumping from really deep and scary stuff to something less so, I gotta ask you, spirit animal of the Chinese Defense Force team. Yeah. 
Now, was that your idea or artist uh, Andre Lima Arajo's idea to make him look just like One Punch Man? So, funny story <laughs> about this. Total accident on both of our parts. Um, <laughs> at, least, at least according to Andre. Maybe he was trying to slip something by Marvel. I don't know. But truthfully, he had turned in a different character design that had a similar outfit, but the person looked very different. And um, our editor, Nick Lowe, uh, had sort of said, like, you know, because we were revealing at the end of the storyline that he was an inhuman, um, Nick had thought there were too many alien-looking inhumans. Because he was like, you know, if you look at the royal family, they're like three-quarters human-looking, Um and, you know, half of Gorgon isn't, and, uh... Triton. Triton. Yeah, like, Triton's not... But, you know, you still... He was like, he was like you know, I think we're getting too far into... Too many of our new Inhumans are looking alien. Um, right. So, it really was just... He had previously said that about, um... Toning down some different designs that we had. Uh, and so, once that came up, he was like, you know, I think we should really have him look human. So the outfit stayed mostly the same. Uh, he then just in changing, you know, his, him to a default, you know, bald Chinese guy um, moved it closer to that. And then there was something in the outfit that I asked for a change without having known One Punch Man. And so it, we, we accidentally backed him into that space. And then I saw the whole... Uh, a lot of people online be like, oh my gosh, they they snuck One Punch Man into the Marvel Universe. And I was like, oh man, if we had done that, I would have more consciously just made him super strong as opposed to he speaks to animals. You know, I've, I've since yeah. uh, uh, learned myself on some One Punch Man. And uh, had it been on purpose, I would have uh, put myself in the position to cash in on um, the, the joys of, of uh, playing him like that too, as opposed to um, a whole different power set. My, it was that's, a fun character. Yeah. But, well, yeah. I'd so like the last time, the last time People's Defense Force appeared in Mighty Avengers, the Nameless killed almost all of them. So for them to still be a team, I know we had to come up with a couple extra new, new people, um, and I kind of worked from there. My initial proposal was uh, Niccolo was concerned that this may be racially insensitive, so we didn't do it. But it kind of self-consciously, as a joke, I wanted to have a lady from China called Dragon Lady, and oh. she just looked very harsh, but then she actually turns into a dragon. And, <laughs> and the, the joke, of course, being it's hyper-literal, not, not that sort of trope uh of the dragon lady but he was like i don't i don't think that's i don't want to I, I don't want to flirt with uh yeah. you know racial stereotypes <laughs> i was like that's fair. that's fair so then as sort of a last minute thing i was like what about spirit animal um so all of him was really this kind of like speed creation uh accidental um uh yeah echo of another design yeah were there any inhuman characters that you really wanted to use but weren't able to? Well, I would have used um, 
<clears throat> I would have used Lockjaw more, but I mistakenly I was <clears throat> I was behind on my Miss Marvel reading, and I thought he was still in that book. Um, uh, otherwise, I would have used him like crazy. Um, I put him in six and seven when I found out. I thought I was getting away with that. I was like, he could teleport in. Yeah, he, he can be everywhere. He can be like Wolverine, show up everywhere. Right, right. Uh, although far more logically. And then... Uh, yes. Especially uh, since Lockjaw and Crystal are buddies. Yeah, yeah. And then and then I found out he wasn't in there. I was like, oh, crap. I would have used him all the time. But we, I was already teeing up uh, the Eudelon story to be pretty minimal in terms of who was there. So I didn't get to... Uh, you know, I made a point to have him back in the last issue, but uh, uh, yeah, I would have, I definitely would have used him way more. Um, uh, I don't know. There's a lot. Um, I thought about uh, this. Will be a real maybe uh, deep cut fun for Inhumans fans. Um, all the sort of young Inhumans from uh, Sean McKeever's run. Um, um, yes, uh, now we're talking. I, listen, so I wanted to. There's a different version of Eleven where you see that they were the um, like goodwill ambassadors, like ground force coordinating the rebuilding of Sin Kong, so that they were oh. like, so that oh. they were sent as like an emissary team to watch over the the reconstruction of Sin Kong. So it was going to sort of explain that they were. A kind of like second wave diplomatic mission to oh, some that of the places. That would have been awesome. Yeah, it um, been. and we have not seen much of them. We got a little, a little peek of Dewaz in an issue of uh, Civil War X Men. Oh but yeah, the rest, right. the rest of the young and humans have been missing in action for a long time. Oh man! And I, and I try to be aware of that stuff. Um, uh, you know, but it, to me, it was sort of important in this book to have some characters who were brand new so that it made sense for some of the Inhumans to be explaining some stuff to them uh, that right. maybe a new read would need to hear. P.O. Whereas stuff. if you just have characters who are used to being Inhuman by this point or had it explained to them in other series, um, you wouldn't... It, that's the number one thing that drives me crazy in scripts is when someone's like, well, as you know, we've been friends for 23 years. And it's just like, that's so dumb. No one ever says this. Characters telling other characters things that they know that person knows uh, drives me bananas. So I think that's the real value of... Um, I mean, there's other things too, but I think that's a major value of new characters. And that kind of meant... I didn't really have room for them. I was also contemplating if we... Were, again... All these things, if we had kept going, but one of them was um, there was something else I was thinking about doing in terms of bringing them in as a factional force. Um, Ooh. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because not all I mean, of them are. I feel that same way about X Men, though. There's, there's so many young X Men teams that basically like fell into the background after their book was over that. Um, I was always mindful of that as an X-Men fan, too. So even though I hadn't, until I got this job, read Sean McKeever's run, I liked it. And I get that those are the Inhumans for some readers. And, you know, just to have them disappear into the ether is, is um, a, a missed opportunity, maybe. Well, you, you did some wonderful work on uh, X-Men Generation Hope. Thank and you. that was a team 
that was comprised of characters who did very much evaporate into the ether. Um, yeah. It, it must kind of chaff your hide a bit to have that happen. <laughs> um, maybe more so if I had created the characters. Maybe it would be. I see. And I think I, I think I'd chafe less at it, and it's more that it bums me out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you when you put your love into giving someone a voice and um, trying to position them where they do offer something, you hope another writer could see it and be like, "Oh, if I throw that person in, they're poised. You know, they they can mix it up in an interesting way." Like uh, so much of what I think I try to do is. Um, define the specificity and individuality of the characters and give them kind of a a point of view that could just be plugged into other situations and make them a valuable team player. Um, That I would hope... I mean, that that presumes any other writers have read my stuff. And (laughs) I know know how many comics I have to read for research that... And then there's the stuff that I get just to read for fun that I'm so woefully behind. Whenever I'm actually working on a bunch of comic stuff, I'm so woefully behind on reading other stuff I want to read. Um, yeah. But, you know, certainly you you hope stuff like that pops up. And when it does, it's super gratifying. Um, when Peter David was writing X Factor after my Gambit run, he pulled in a bunch of references to my Gambit run and some characters that I created for that. And that was, that was totally tickled me. Um, but uh, I, I certainly don't expect it to happen. Um, but yeah, you, you hope you're enriching the tools and the characters and the toy box. Um, and if anyone else picks it up, it just shows that, yeah, you did something someone else, one of your peers thought was interesting. It's really gratifying, but I never assume it would happen. Well, that Gambit run was a lot of fun. I certainly had fun with it. He was a he was a delightful <laughs> character to live with in my head because you never he, he yeah, sort of has the permission to do kind of unpredictable, maybe inappropriate things at any given point in time. So um, w- without being a total bastard, you know what I mean? Like he <laughs> he's uh, but you know if at any point he might steal something, blow something up, or kiss a stranger, like that's a pretty fun. Uh, uh, Russian roulette to pull at any moment in time. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear you, and you should, and, and you can rest assured that there are still hardcore transonic fans out there. <laughs> and, um, uh, <clears throat> do, do will you be involved in in any way with any of the upcoming Inhuman events, uh, IVX or Resurrection? <laughs> Well, so um, that you can say, yeah, uh, you might not be allowed to say. Yeah, I I would hesitate to speak uh, much out of turn about some of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> there there was a degree of uh, reshaping some stuff when um, the Inhumans titles just changed editorial hands. Um, ah. Interestingly enough, Charles Beecham was one of my editors, had to cycle off the book. Darren Shang came on, and now Charles Beecham is working under Will Moss, and then the Inhuman- he inherited the Inhumans books. So it, it ended up with one of the editors still in common. Um, 
So I know he and I had talked about a lot of stuff the whole time we were working and prepping the book. Um, it remains to be seen. Um, but I've certainly weighed in on stuff for them. Um, you know, I would say don't hesitate to uh, keep bothering Charles and even more so Will Moss on Twitter and say that you want me to be doing something else than humans. I think, I think if they... Right. <laughs> the letter writing campaign begins yeah. now. Um, <laughs> I'll rally I, the troops. I know, uh, you know, I... Uh, uh, I, I've never worked with Will, so um, and I know he's uh, reshaping things right now for for what's going to happen in the midterm future. So um, I would certainly love to be able to do more with this, um, and that remains to a lot of that's still getting solidified. So who now, as far as I know, and I might be wrong. Uh, birthdays aren't really celebrated in old Adelan. Whose idea was it to sell to us, uh, put together a surprise birthday party for, uh, for crystal's 30th. Uh, I, in, in my mind, it's probably Swain. <laughs> uh, of course. Why don't I even ask? <clears throat> um, yeah. I mean, it's her ship, right? She's, yeah. um, she she's Captain has- Steubing. Yeah, she has an admiration for Crystal and I think uh, picks up on the fact that it could make a... That, that Crystal could use it, you know what I mean? I think I think as much as anyone, she was in a position to feel that uh, Crystal was um, needing a reminder that she's doing good stuff, um, that she was helping people. Um so yeah, I, in 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 my mind, that's that's her. As much as she was trying to keep herself out of it for uh, personal reasons, um, I think she was the uh, the one who plotted it. Got that's it. what I thought too. And I, I have to say, thank maybe you for Johnny bringing Storm. Oh no, I always thought it was Wayne. No. He's no. he, John, Johnny Storm does not keep track of people's birthdays, man. <laughs> he is not that kind of guy. Well said. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I had to say thank you for answering the question of where the heck has Luna been? Oh, because yeah, I had been wondering. <clears throat> I've been well, worried. that was one from the beginning of the series. She was on a list that I was thinking about putting her on the team, and they felt like they wanted enough risk of the mission itself that it would be perceived as irresponsible to have her there. Um. Uh, they wanted the stakes of this mission, and 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 I, I was won over by that argument pretty quickly. Like, you really would you really bring your daughter into, you know, North Korea as it were, or some of these other places? And uh, I was like, no, that's that's fair. Um, so from there, I was like, well, at some point we have to bring her in because I think it shows another side of Crystal, and it can be a meaningful. Um, uh, uh, way to build out the world and also just like I would want to see her um, and so you know I I'm a huge Captain Britain fan I'm a big fan of um, uh, almost any iteration he's been a part of and uh, uh, I also was tickled by um, 
Dennis Hopeless's world building in Avengers Arena. So to me, I was like, oh, that's that's an easy answer because we never really see the Britain Academy or the 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 Braddock Academy, um, but we know it's there and it's you know preparing other superhero kids, but but we never see it um, because we are only telling stories about a ten mile vicinity around New York uh, most of the time. <laughs> right. Uh, so it also fit the kind of global um, nature of the story to me. She's and, uh, sassy. Yeah, I'm hysterical. Well, I think I think when you go to this kind of, um, I feel like a boarding school uh, kind of gives you this false sense of being a grown up. You know that yes. sort of like emancipation from your parents. I think probably. And I, I can only imagine what sort of like Waldorf-inspired um, uh, curriculum that school has. <laughs> but to me, I was like, oh, it's just creating these little uh, like semantics analyzing uh, people who feel like they're they're miniature adults even when they're not really all the way. Um, but what I would have found really interesting if um, and unfortunately we're not going to see this is you know i think luna's an empath right in in some ways so i would have yeah. thought it would have been fun to see her play off of swain yeah and, uh, well she Anthea. for her isn't it that she reads people not that although i think they later there are some stories where she affects people but originally she just read them right she could yes. see yeah see them and then in in that x factor run she had the ability to sort of affect people as well. And it might be a burgeoning power. Okay. I wasn't quite sure, but I just thought it would have been cool to see them play off of each other a little bit too. Oh, sure. so many things that I wanted to see. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, I'll, I'll admit I wanted to do a plot line right before IVX with uh, Pietro and Luna there in order to start oh. leading into the way that their family had spent years with a foot in the X-Men camp. Um, You're killing me. I would have loved to that. Yeah, that would have been really good to see. To to really, during the event, um, uh, put them in a difficult place where you weren't sure how it was going to go down. And get some good scenes with Magneto talking to the woman he's thought of as his granddaughter, who now is fully ensconced in, in humanity. I just wanted to really explore those relationships and put the Can hot poker on it. Can we get one shot on that? Like, seriously? <laughs> I, I, think you know, would, again, I think people would buy the crap out of that. Again, I think Will Moss is on Twitter. Uh, just yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's just when I was getting through my uh, ninth and tenth stage of grief over the end of all <laughs> new humans, you sent me back to, uh, I think I'm now in denial again. Um, it, in your in your own sort of personal head canon, since uh, you know you can't answer this, where are the alpha primitives? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, I know. So you know, again, I have a uh, head canon on that. Gorgon's daughter had tried to create a um, sort of refuge, new life away from it all for uh, for them, and I think. That's probably still true, where they're living mm. a sort of, like, relaxed, agrarian, um, you know, kind of peaceful 
you know, where where she's offering up to them whatever they they want. I, certainly, the alpha primitives are one of the most complicated and thorny elements of of the Inhumans mythology. Um, yes, yes, and indeed. and to and it's it's very interesting to me when the uh, you know the the people who want to dismiss all of Inhumans are like they own slaves, and I'm like, yeah, that's crappy. That's not the story we're telling now. Like, there's, you know, that would sort of be like, I, yeah, I think letting have taking anything. I understand if fundamental to its D. There are characters who I think are fundamentally problematic, and I think they are by virtue of who the character is. Um, they're maybe not great to keep trying to update or salvage. Um, and I just mean across fiction, but um, that's that's fair. But I think characters who, in a storyline from the '60s, did something bad, like you know, I'm pretty sure we could go back and dig up a hundred stories where Superman was a raging asshole. But <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe may, I, You're allowed I just to realized I may okay. have heard you an explicit tag when you didn't want one on this podcast. Oh, I don't. Um, but, you know, we don't, you know, there's that famous panel of Batman slapping the crap out of Robin. We don't say, oh, no more Batman stories. He did something problematic when one writer wrote this thing back then. And it's sort of like, you know, if we're mad that Jack Kirby gave them a sort of um, a slave race. And there there have been like three retcons to make it something else and to try and make good on that I think it's best to kind of um, let let them live out their days peacefully um, I, well I agree I, I just feel like burying it is just as problematic as anything I mean it's really but one it, of, one you had of the a story that, and it went away you, you think you gotta keep pulling them back into the no I, I think that that um you know, one of the things that really distinguishes the Inhumans is that they are that, that Adelan represented a very problematic culture. They they practiced eugenics. They had slaves. They weren't good guys, and that's interesting. Not every superhero has to be the sort of uh, the archetype of, of ultimate morality. You can have yeah. bad characters um, or problematic characters. Um, which is one of the reasons why I like the Utilon story so much is it went back to that whole idea of here is this culture that to us is, is quite bizarre. But, yeah. Um, it's and they're so not different. fundamentally evil, but they're doing some real shady things. Questionable. Yeah. Yes. Right. But, you know, when people are participating in it, and this, this is the difference, you know, obviously the same terminology wouldn't apply for, like, a slave race, but... In terms of Utilon, these are people who are participating in it, mostly voluntarily. Um, That's true. I mean, yeah. maybe the children aren't, but some of them are. And it's they try to sort of make good uh, and adjust accordingly, but, uh, you know. Oh, well, I'm not saying that they should come back. As, I'm just thinking as a way of, uh, you know, to the same extent that America as a country needs to continue to think about and talk about our own sordid history sure, of, sure. of having slaves. I think that Adelan 
should continue to address and talk about and try and come to terms with our own sordid history uh, sure. of doing terrible things. That's that's simply what I meant. Not not that uh, um, that they need to be, you know, continued on this. You know, I'm trying to remember. There was some place I had notes in some story, and I know it didn't make it into it, but I'm trying to remember what it was. There was something where someone was going to talk about that, and Gorgon was going to sort of say, like, we. And maybe this was. Maybe this was something I thought about for the Udalon story and then didn't do, but there was some note somewhere about it coming up and one of the new Inhumans being kind of horrified by it and gorgon's uh, like that yeah. i would like to see and gorgon being like yeah we were raised with this and it took us it took our children pointing it out to us how wrong this was for us to sort of realize this thing we grew up with was messed up and he's like and it changed in my generation because you know when we connected with the broader world uh it helped us understand the way our own priorities were out of whack and to sort of say, like, you know, we, it changed in my lifetime because we did bridge out to other cultures and we were able to look at ourselves in a different way um, and realize that this was wrong. <clears throat> um, and I don't remember if that was some notes for a different story or if it was just something in the Udalon story that got squeezed out with all the other stuff we were juggling. Um, it was a very thick story, so that, that would have been a fun piece to you know read. Oh, yeah. Well, and it, and maybe a valuable one, but, uh, you know, for all the people who want to dismiss the Inhumans for that forever, I'm sure they weren't reading my arc and my, <laughs> my being the fifth person to speak to this and try to uh, course correct would probably wouldn't have moved the needle for them. But, but, I, but I agree with you that I think it's worth not just pretending like it didn't happen, but I think you got to find the right way to go there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm not a professional writer. <laughs> well, we I so play. appreciate you taking the time to speak with us at such great length. Um, and for all of you viewers out there, uh, oh, listeners, uh, listeners out there, I'm sorry, for all you listeners out <laughs> there. They've just been there, staring at their, at their static iPod screen for an hour and a half. We have some on. giveaways. We have the uh, issues 8 through 11 of All New and Human. The codes um, are open to you, so first come, first serve. Whoever uh, writes in, uh, those um, will be gifted to you. And uh, am I am I seeing any of you at New York Comic Con? You will be seeing me. I um, will be there. Oh yeah, plug the booth. I, I plan on it. Uh, we will be seeing uh, James Asmus at the Boom Studios booth. So make sure you guys stop by if you're going to NYCC. I'll be around too, so you can always tweet me at serendipity824 if you guys want to. And I was going to say we should figure out maybe maybe I'll sign a few extra things for you guys to give away. On the oh, podcast. That, that'd be amazing. Hell yeah. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Thank that's you. awesome. I will uh, bring some stuff if that's what you want to do. I will well, have I can, stuff. I can try to remember to bring some stuff myself so that it doesn't have to tax you directly. They send me comps and everything, you know. So. Oh, that's, oh, that's awesome. So, I might forget. I might forget. <laughs> no, <laughs> I won't. I have. I, I have. Forget, like two or three things every time I go to a show. 
It's okay. I'm the same way. But I have extras of just about every comic and the amount of variant covers I have. So <laughs> I will be um, bringing stuff. I also have a, a really nifty uh, James uh, Foggett. Uh, Foskett? How do you say his name? I don't know. He, he, um, he has ones in SD and humans as Popeye characters. <laughs> so I might have to have you sign that. That's great. Popeye, so. okay. Um, well, all right. So questions and comments. Every, uh, we'll have lots of giveaways uh, in the future. So uh, send them in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Asmus. Yep. I, I, I wanted to uh, say a few things that aren't being recorded. Are we still oh. recording? Do you want me to stop recording then, do you? I think that was a good place to end it, don't you guys think? Yeah, okay. I agree. 